is Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. It's human nature to seek out awe-inspiring experiences, and we know these events can make us feel connected and inspired and just good. But what's actually happening in our brains when we're awed by something? And maybe awe has an even greater purpose than we realize. Engaging in awe can actually have pragmatic effects on letting go of what you assume to be true already, enabling you to sit with difference. Neuroscientist Bo Lotto studies how the brain deals with uncertainty and the ways people open up or shut down based on what they see and experience. All day long, we take in hundreds of minor, subtle inputs, like interacting with strangers, watching a billboard on a bus go by, or seeing a wild animal. And these events set off chain reactions we aren't even aware of. Can we learn more about those impacts and understand ourselves better? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas Health. In his energetic talk, Lotto uses slides, music, and videos to help us absorb the insights of his work. He also gives us a few opportunities to feel that awe feeling we're talking about. Here's Lotto. What is our greatest challenge? What is our greatest fear? Think about what is your greatest fear in life? In fact, in some sense, the most dangerous thing you could do is not an action, it's a word. And the word is why. Because why suggests things could be different. And so one of our greatest fears is that life changes, okay? That the only constant in life is change. And yet that change is our greatest fear. And in fact, it's impermanence is an essential um, Buddhist doctrine that life is constantly changing. And what's more, the change that we're experiencing is increasingly unforeseen. So did you know that in in 2010, let's see, the top 10 uh, um, most in-demand jobs in 2010 didn't even exist in 2004, right? And that was, what, 12 years ago. So we're educating children for a world that doesn't yet exist. It's not that they were, more pop- they were just less popular, they weren't even around. And what's more, the change that's happening in your life is increasingly beyond your control. Why is that? Well, one reason is because over 50% of the world is now connected to, via the internet. So if something happens on the other side of the world, which we've also been experiencing this last two years, right, it almost affects us immediately. I've lost my, oh, there we go, it's back. So we're increasingly beyond, the the change that we're experiencing is increasingly not ours. It's someone else's. Uh, And what's more, change is no longer local. Some of our greatest challenges are global. Did you know that it's predicted that there's going to be more plastic in the sea than fish by 2050? So the challenges we face are, are local, but they're also global. Okay? Um, And what's more, change can be massively transformative. Not just little effects, but massive effects. Think about the telescope. Once upon a time, we thought we were the center of the universe. And the telescope was invented. And then it turns out we're not. Right? Though some of us still behave as if we are. Right? And that was a transformative change. In fact, some of the the greatest technologies, they don't just enable you to do things you can already do easier, faster. They enable you to see what you couldn't see before. Those are the transformative technologies, the telescope, the microscope. 
Okay? So life is uncertain. You know this. It's always been the case. COVID, technology, this is not new. It's always been this way. And yet it's our greatest fear. And so what's the problem with change? Is that we hate not knowing. Right? It was a really bad idea to not know during evolution. If you weren't sure that was a predator, it was too late. <laughs> we evolved to take what is uncertain and make it certain, right? We evolved to predict. If you couldn't predict, you died. The better you're able to predict, the more likely you're to survive, which is why when you experience times of uncertainty, because you're seeing the world through your evolutionary ancestors, you're seeing the world through their brain, cortisol starts being released, our stress hormone. And when it's released for a chronic period of time, your immune system starts degrading. Your brain cells, they start withering, they can even die. All kinds of things happen when we experience the stress of uncertainty. Right? And again, because dying was easy during evolution. Right? There are lots of ways to die. Very few ways to survive. Right? So, Dying was easy, which is why if you couldn't predict, you died. The better you're able to predict, the more likely you'll survive. We hate uncertainty so much that we would rather experience predictable pain than not knowing. Right? We'd rather know that we're going to be hurt than not know what's going to happen. Which is why you find people in toxic relationships or in situations that they know they should leave because knowing tomorrow is more comfortable than not knowing tomorrow, even if tomorrow is going to be a bad day. Right? And it's why we hate bad design. Okay, so my lab, Lab Missits, we did a study on what happens when you experience bad design and technology as a, as a way of figuring out what happens to your brain when you experience frustration. So we designed an experiment where people came into this space and everything in the space was designed to make them frustrated. They didn't know this, right? They would arrive, we'd arrive 10 minutes late, we would blame it on them, we'd say, oh, you must have got the time wrong, okay? They were sat in front of a computer, they had to do a meaningless class to describe the room for 60 seconds, and then, hit a, and then speak about it, hit the button, and you get the wheel of death, right? And then it's like, Zzz goes away, can you do it? Turns to the technician who's an actor, says, you know, he's on his phone. You know, what's going on? Oh, I don't know, what did you do, right? We found that in five minutes of bad design, you become more misogynistic, you become more racist, right? In just five minutes of bad design, we hate uncertainty, we hate not knowing, okay? And imagine that's happening all the time, every single day and you're consciously not aware of this. And it's why we educate young children for answers, the right answers, rather than what is a brilliant question. We don't educate young children not only to not ask questions, but what makes a brilliant question. An example is there was a study done by this WAG study. 50% of the questions that are asked in a classroom by the teacher are management-related. 37% are sort of like information recall, like what's four times seven? Okay? Only 8% of the questions that are asked in a classroom challenge your higher order thinking. So, what happens when you feel dis what happens when you experience uncertainty? Your brain goes into what we call a disempowered state. 
right? You become a more extreme version of yourself. If you're conservative, you become more conservative. If you're liberal, you become more liberal. Why? Because you go to a space of familiarity, which is one of the reasons why we're getting so much polarization right now. Okay? What's more, you become a more reflexive thinker. You stop thinking. You respond more reflexively. Here's an example. This actually happened. This is a guy who's going in to rob a bank in, in Australia, right? Hands the teller a note, and the bank shuts down, right? He's trapped. <coughs> he can't get out. What's the assumption that his brain's missing? What's going on? What's wrong? He's forgotten that doors pull as well as push. It was never locked. <coughs> How many of you experienced this? Right? What? You've all robbed banks. Oh my goodness, what a crowd. Okay. What's more, we become less rational and less self aware. Okay, here's an example. Everything you do is grounded in your assumptions. The challenge is we often don't know why we do what we do, okay? We have these hidden assumptions or biases. Here's an example, okay? I'm not making a political statement here, by the way. It's just an, ex an example of someone not being aware of their irrationality and lack of self-awareness. Nothing Barack Obama could do to prove that he was born here. Uh, if there was maybe witnesses that were attendants at his birth, like his mother? Do you listen to no, his mother? No, no, no. She has motivation to lie. So you don't trust uh, Donald Trump's birth certificate either? Uh, yeah, because he's been here forever. Well, how do you know? But how do you, what's your proof? Um, well, his parents and... But no, but they, they're biased. I'm talking about like people who could Why be their own. Why would they be biased? Well, like, I'm just using your logic okay. against you. Right? <laughs> we laugh. We all do the same thing, right? We all do this. What's more, when you're in a disempowered state because of uncertainty, you start looking for patterns that confirm what you assume to be true already. Even your eye movements will look for things that confirm what you already believe. Okay? So this is why we're getting so many conspiracy theories as well. Okay? So you become more gullible. You're more likely to believe things that already resonate with you. Um, so, and this is because your brain evolved to see what you've seen before. So if you, if you previously you perceived a threat from a person or from a situation, a relationship, you're more likely to perceive threat again, right? We didn't evolve to see what's there. It's another talk, but we never evolved to see what's there, nor do we see the information. We see the meaning of that information based on our history, okay? So we perceive what we perceived before. Here's an example. I'm gonna play you a sound string. Okay, you're not going to hear anything interesting in this, right? But what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you into a state of delusion. Can you hear anything interesting? No? Try reading along. Can you hear it? Okay, are you getting better at hearing it? Okay, notice you're getting better at hearing something that doesn't actually exist. You're becoming delusional. Right? and you're still going to hear it. You're now forever going to hear that sentence with that sound. What is that sound? Is this played backwards? Another one bust dust. Another one bust dust. <laughs> so, we perceive what we expect to perceive. 
Now, I'm going to give you an example here, okay? Now, I'm going to tell you that the sound string in this never changes. It's never going to change. What's going to change is your expectation of what you hear. Now, you can choose whether you're going to hear Brainstorm or Green Needle. You choose. If you hear Brainstorm, then next time, hear Green Needle. It's going to repeat back, it's going to keep repeating. It's kind of a machine voice, okay? But you choose what you're going to hear. You create your own expectation. You ready? Okay, it never changes. I'm going to tell you that. It's not going to help you. Okay. If you hear brainstorm, let's try to hear brainstorm. Now hear green needle. Try hearing. Now try to hear brain needle. It never changes. You're hearing your expectations. And we're just talking about sound. Imagine your expectations of another person, of yourself, and what you're perceiving. Grounded in your history. And by the way, your history doesn't really belong to you. Most of your life happened without you there. Your brain has encoded all kinds of assumptions and biases that you inherited from your, from your family, from your culture, from your organization, from your evolutionary ancestors. Right? Most of your life happened without you even there. Okay? And we perceive the world according to those biases and expectations, which is why we hate uncertainty so much that we fall into what I call the certainty trap. One of the biggest challenges, I think, in contemporary society is certainty, which is why I had the idea of entering conflict with a question, which we're going to come back to. Okay? Certainty is one of our biggest challenges. It's one of the biggest sources of emotional and physical unwellness. I would argue. The certainty trap, to think that I know. Because what happens when we face change is we try to stand still rather than move with the change because we hate not knowing. Okay? Because to stand still, to not change with change, is much more comfortable. Okay? Less risk. It requires much less effort to stand still. We think, but in fact, it's not the case. To see differently actually requires energy, okay? 20% of the energy you just consumed at dinner goes to 2% of your body mass. Your ba brain is incredibly expensive. Thinking is expensive, which is why so few people do it, right? <laughs> it literally costs energy. Every time your billions of brain cells fire, it costs energy. To change your thinking means you're actually changing your brain uh, physiology. You're growing more tissue, growing more cells. It's very expensive much easier to conserve energy, because we evolved to conserve energy, okay? So, and what's more, to see differently requires all kinds of risks. You could have risks to your own life, but you could also have risks to social exclusion. To see differently from the people around you creates the possibility of excommunication. Well, during evolution, that was a bad idea to be kicked out of the group. So we'd rather go with the group, even though we might not believe the group. Okay? And what's more is we choose delusion. Even when it's presented to us, even if we sh we're shown that we're wrong, we're actually, and if you tied your belief to that, you're more likely to hold on to that belief and turn it into faith than to change your mind. Here's an example. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and 
I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless and I don't know if it's gonna stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever gonna stop. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there. Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing- You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. No, see, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, you're out. not even listening now. Okay, fine, I will listen, fine. <laughs> it's just, sometimes it's like, there's this achy, I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. Right? We all do this, right? We are all in the face of presenting with something that completely contradicts what we know to be true. We will ignore it and we'll go into a state of delusion. We'll make choices that close us rather than open us, right? I call it the physics of no. How many times have you engaged with someone and they've said no as if it's gravity? As if it couldn't be other than no, right? They've suddenly just made their box smaller. By the way, I don't believe in stepping outside the box because all you do is you step inside a new box, right? You can never step outside your assumptions and biases. It's the size of your box that matters, right? When you say no or yes, depending on whether the decision's constraining you or opening you, we often close ourselves, constrain ourselves, okay? We avoid, and this is enabling us to avoid complexity. Life is complex, not complicated, but complex means it's diverse but integrated. Nature is complex, but we try to avoid that complexity. We like binary, yes or no, right? And we do this by not engaging with life's contextuality. Yes here, but no there. It just has to be yes all the way or no all the way, right? And yet, context is everything when it comes to perception. And perception underpins everything it is to be you. We try to ignore context, to de eliminate the complexity, because again, that takes us into uncertainty. We seek simple rules. I'm not gonna give you any rules, okay? Rules are, rules are very fragile. They're specific to a context, but they don't transcend context. Okay, they're specific, they're efficient. There's nothing wrong with rules in a context. Change the context, the rule no longer applies, whereas a principle transcends context. But we look for rules, the 11 rules to live by, right? As if there's no context in which there's a 12th or where that 10th doesn't work, right? Rather than seeking principles, principles like love or kindness, okay? And in that regard, we actually define ourselves in terms of nouns rather than verbs. Have you thought about that? Nouns are people, place, and things. They're static. Whereas verbs are dynamic, and yet we choose to define ourselves in terms of nouns, right? Rather than as a process, and yet we all are processes. Here's a wonderful uh, um, uh, insight, and this by um, Kim and Ruiz, um, Braiding Sweetgrass, a wonderful book if you don't know it. It's about Native American Indians, and wonderful in how to live in nature with harmony. And she makes the point that 70% of the words in English are nouns, Whereas in Native American, it's 70% of the words are verbs. 
We call it a cove, whereas they call it coving. Things are constantly becoming. Okay? But we define ourselves narrowly in terms of nouns. And this matters because when it comes to conflict, and we identify with a noun, and we define ourselves in terms of this meaning. And I mentioned this before, but I'll do it again, that if you and I are in conflict, right? Again, it's as if we put ourselves like we're in a tug of war. You're going to try to prove I'm wrong to pull me towards you, and, you're going to, and I'm going to try to do the same thing, to prove that you're wrong to pull you towards me. Right? Notice that we're trying to not move. And yet you only ever learn when you move. So it's as if we enter conflict with the desire to win and not learn. You only learn when you move. So the problem isn't conflict. Conflict's a beautiful thing. We can only learn in conflict. The problem is how we enter it in the first place. We enter with certainty and with answers rather than with questions and uncertainty. We seek to be validated rather than understood, much less to understand. Right? And we so often go to anger and even hate. Anger is a very natural human emotion. Anger is very important. I'm not saying don't go to anger, but we so often go to anger when we don't want to move, as a means of not moving. Okay? Because what happens in your brain when you feel anger? It actually activates, well, first of all, you feel very certain, right? And you become morally judgmental. And that certainty actually activates the reward centers in your brain. So you're actually rewarded for the anger because you're not having to move, because you're so certain. But improving health requires another way. Okay? This is not working for us. And yet it's very natural. Okay? But I'm explaining why it's natural. But it doesn't work. Because we know that our physical health is decreasing. Okay? Our mental health, we know, is decreasing, especially for the young. I have three gremlins. They're 20 to 23, right? They're literally gremlins. If you've seen the bar scene in gremlins, that's them, okay? And their generation, they're very much struggling with, this, with mental health. And in many sense, everybody is. Intolerance, as we're experiencing, is increasing, right? The quality of relationships is also decreasing because people are so certain, right? They're not willing to move. A relationship that doesn't move, that doesn't expand, is dying. Just like in nature, life moves. Things that stand still get selected out, okay? Pro chronic pain is increasing. We just finished recently a study on chronic pain and emotional mm, sources of chronic pain, which a lot of it has to do with uncertainty. So what is that other way? Now, there are a number of uh, I'm going to just suggest one tonight, okay? What is that other way? Well, you have to learn to change with change rather than trying to stop the change. The metaphor is like being a surfer, right? You have to become adaptable. Now, if you're a surfer, now we're not going to get many surfers here in Colorado, right? But if you're a surfer, you can imagine that you're on a surfboard, the waves are coming in, try standing still. Right? Think of the energy required to not surf, right? to stand still. The waves are coming in, you try not to fall on your board. It requires a huge amount of energy to stand still when life around you is moving. Whereas you just surf with change. It actually decreases the amount of energy required. To become adaptable is actually the most successful strategy in nature. 
And in fact, the top CEOs of the top companies, the most sought after skill that they're looking for right now is adaptability and number one is creativity. I'd say creativity falls within adaptability. Okay. And what's more, adaptability achieves our greatest need. What is our greatest need? Right? Our greatest fear is uncertainty. What is our greatest need? Well, instead of telling you, I want to show you, I want you to feel it. So I want you to all stand up. We're going to conduct a piece of music together. All right? Now, I'm a crap con conductor. So if I can do this, you can do it as well. Okay? Now, you all know this piece of music. But I want you to notice how it builds. Okay? And we're going to experience what our greatest need is. You ready? Yes. All right. We want this loud. Closure. Oh, sit, you can sit down, right? This is why Game of Thrones is successful, right? They finish every episode. Oh, they finish. Oh, did we lose it? We are, are we here? We finish every episode on a minor chord, right? Because they know you need closure. As soon as they give closure, the series is over, okay? This is what DJs do. They ramp up the music and then they drop the beat. Okay, here's an example. Notice what happens to your body when you experience closure. Watch what happens to their body when they experience the closure of dropping the beat. It's a little something like this. Here, Lotto plays a video of a concert by the band House of Pain. We see the crowd standing still for the intro, and then every single person starts jumping when the beat drops. You feel it? We're not the only ones. Right? Then he shows another video with the same song, but this one shows two pet birds. When the beat drops, one of the birds puffs up and starts banging his head to the music. <laughs> right? What is closure? Closure is when we meet that moment of understanding. Right? When you meet that moment, I love that. When you, meet, when you meet that moment of understanding, right, that's closure. And your brain gets what we call an intrinsic reward, which you were just experiencing. When you have that intrinsic reward, it's because Evelyn said, that's a good idea, let's keep them doing that. Understanding is a great idea because understanding enables you to be adaptable. Okay? Play. What's the point of play? It's play. You get an intrinsic reward for play. Right? So, understanding achieves that intrinsic reward. And you can't get to understanding if you haven't had that uncertainty before. It doesn't make sense. You can't achieve understanding, you can't get to knowing without first having not knowing. Okay? So, but what is the first step to change? What is that first step to uncertainty, to adapting, to discovery, to creating art, to falling in love? What is the first step? It's to let go. It's literally to let go. The first step to doing something is to not do something. 
The first step from A to B is not B. Your first step from A to B is from A to not A. When you experience A, your brain will go to a reflex. You'll get a stimulus, you'll do a reflex response. Your brain will generate, just like when the doctor hits your patellar tendon, your leg goes out. Same thing happens with your perception, same thing happens with your behavior. Okay? You go to an uh, assumed meaning. The first step is to let go of that assumed meaning, to go to not A. Right? But to go to not A is to go to I don't know. We hate not knowing, and yet to not know is the first step to being adaptable, which is why I have I don't know tattooed here on my wrist, pointing up at me to remind me that I don't know, because it's the first step to creativity, the first step to innovation, the first step to love, okay? And yet not A is the place that we avoid, and yet it's the only place that we can go if we're ever going to do anything different. Think about it. Nothing interesting in life has ever began with knowing. It's began with not knowing. But it's so essentially that we go there that evolution gave us a solution. Okay, what is that solution? I'm going to show you what that solution is so you can feel it. Here, Lotto starts playing a video of birds over a lake. They're starlings, creating what's called a murmuration. A large flock of birds fly close together in the air and move around quickly in what seems like choreographed patterns. The result is dark, fast-moving clouds of birds in the sky, twisting and turning. Scientists have theories, but no one knows exactly why starlings do this. It's awe, right? Nature's evolution solution to not knowing is to stepping into letting go is awe, right? It's possibly our most powerful perception. And many of you will have been experiencing awe in that moment, yes? Right? We've actually quantified it. And people, everyone experiences awe in that moment, okay? So why does awe matter? We're talking about health here. So why does awe matter for improving your health? And the point is this, no matter what rules I give you, right, no matter how many books you read, no matter how many therapy sessions you go to, right, nothing's going to change until you want it to change. Until you actually want to, nothing's going to happen. Okay? Awe gives you that want to. Okay? Awe gives you that want to to let go. Okay? To become less reactive and more proactive. When you're experiencing uncertainty and you proactively engage with it, your brain changes. Right? Your optimism increases. Your fear decreases. Rather than constantly reacting, awe gives you that moment actually to be able to be proactive and step into uncertainty, to let go. A dear friend of mine, Dwayne Michaels, he's probably the world's greatest living photographer, about 88 years old. Right? I'll see him next week in New York. Wonderful, wonderful person. He said to me, awe gives us the curiosity to overcome our cowardice. A wonderful phrase, right? So what is awe? What actually is it? Well, awe, we've been asking this question for thousands of years. Poets have engaged with it. Religious engage with it, 
right? We've been, only recently have scientists started engaging with what is awe. And so a couple of years ago, we discovered that awe is, of course, a brain, a state of the brain. And we did this by doing an experiment with Cirque du Soleil, where we actually recorded the brain activity of people watching a Cirque performance. A video montage shows Lotto and his team getting the Cirque du Soleil attendees ready for the experiment. The scientists set up the technology and fit people with brainwave monitoring caps and then look at the subject's brainwaves as they watch beautiful and awe-inspiring circus acts. And what did we discover? Well, first of all, we discovered that the prefrontal cortex activity goes down. Your prefrontal cortex is the frontier, and it's in charge of like, your attention, what you focus on. Right? It stops you from doing sort of reflexive responses. By doing this, it means you're sort of immersing yourself and engaging in the world. You're stopped controlling. Okay? The second thing that happens is that activity in what we call the DMN, the default mode network, increased. The activity in this, these areas of the brain that are highly connected are active when you're doing lots of self-referential, in particular how I relate to the world around me. And then about a minute after you experience that awe, your brain switches, the prefrontal activity comes biased towards the left hemisphere, which is correlated with people wanting to step forward into the world. So first, you're experiencing the sense of sitting back, losing sense of control, feeling your self-reference into the world around you, and then wanting to step forward. And the brain activity across the subjects was so consistent that we could actually train an artificial neural network to predict whether or not people were experiencing awe and wonder to an accuracy of 80%. So we could brain read. Right? What's more, we found that the activity in the brain and the behavior is not unlike when you're on psilocybin. When I say you're on psilocybin, I mean when one is on psilocybin. <laughs> right? So what does awe do? So that's what awe is. It's a state of the brain, okay? And that's the state of the brain. But what does it do? Well, there's a good deal of research recently looking at the, the behavioral and perceptual impacts of awe. So how does awe help us let go of uncertainty? Well, first, it increases humility. Humility is the first step to creativity. You become more humble, right? It increases your sense of connection to the world. Many people have described themselves as feeling small but connected, okay? Many people talk about diminishing ego. I think it does something else, but we can come back to that later. It even decreases your, your need for materialism. In other words, your need to hold on to material. Again, it's evidence of letting go. That sense of feeling small, connected is a letting go. Mater decreased material is letting go, right? Awe expands us, okay? It increases your positive mood, increases your optimism. And in our experiments, as well as those by Haight and Keltner, and a lot of the work on awe has been done by a wonderful group in, in the Keltner lab at Berkeley. And what they and we've also shown is that it increases your, your um, sense of your closest to others. You become more pro-social. You're more likely to hold the door for another person. Ask how I can help when you experience awe. Your need for cognitive closure decreases. Your need for certainty decreases. You're more willing to sit in uncertainty, right? Your tolerance to risk increases. You want to take risk, and you're actually better able at taking it. 
All of which are required to let go. If you're going to let go, you're taking a risk. You're more tolerant. If you're going to let go, you're stepping into certainty. You're more tolerant to that uncertainty. Okay? And what's more, you even redefine yourself. So after experiencing awe, we ask people, are you someone who experiences awe in the past? And they say, oh, yes. Right? In fact, they saw themselves as someone who experiences awe far in the past far more than people who had not experienced awe. In other words, they come to redefine themselves. What's more, we found that we asked people to describe themselves. Who are you? Okay? Who are you? They used many more words when they were experiencing awe before than had they not experienced awe. Okay? And what's more, when they had to ask that question in the context of a stranger versus someone they love, most of the people excuse far more words in relation to the person who in their relationship with than with a stranger. In other words, someone who you could be more vulnerable with. What's more, those words actually became more uniform. You're more willing not to describe yourself just as happy, but also as sad or angry. Again, letting go and expanding yourself. So does awe work, though? So these are all the wonderful things. We can describe these, we can measure them, but does it actually have impact in the world? So for this, we did another study, and we tested it on conflict, in particular intolerance. And we asked, could we use awe as a tool to decrease intolerance towards difference? So first what we did is we subjected people. We found out what is the thing that they are intolerant of? What is the thing that they would never move on? Okay? Was it climate change? Was it abortion? What was it? Everyone had their own trigger for intolerance, which you're seeing here. Okay? And what happened in the brain when people experienced that intolerance, when they experienced that trigger stimulus? Their risk appetite decreased. Their tolerance to uncertainty decreased. They were less willing to be uncertain. Their empathy towards others decreased. Their focus in terms of the brain activity, their focus on the stimulus increased. They became very attending to that, folk, uh, to that stimulus. And actually, the, the perception of themselves and the, um, the focus on themselves, the DMN activity decreased. They became less focused on themselves and how they fit, more focused on that, that triggering stimulus. But what happens if we first gave them an awe stimulus and then presented them with this intolerance trigger that we knew they were intolerant to? Awe mitigated all of those effects. What's more, awe was contextual. We had to combine awe with a sense of growth. So when people were in a mindset of growth and experiencing awe, then suddenly the intolerance decreased. They became more tolerant to that difference. Okay? Their risk appetite was much less. Their tolerance to uncertainty was much less. The empathy increased. Their focus on the stimulus decreased, and the focus on themselves increased in relation to the person or the stimulus that they were engaged with. So engaging in awe can actually have pragmatic effects on letting go of what you assume to be true already, enabling you to sit with difference, which is the first step necessary to achieve understanding, not just of yourself, but of another person. So I'm going to finish with the question is, where can you find awe? Where does it exist? Right? Where does awe exist? Well, the fact is, awe is not a function of the world. The world exists, but there's nothing awesome about it. Right? It would still be there if we weren't there. Awe is inside you. Awe is a way of looking at the world. 
okay? It's where you find the impossible in the common. Okay? I'll give you an example. Larry Maloney, a very good friend, a brilliant neuroscientist out of NYU. We were working on this awe study together. And he told me a story of he, when he's lecturing at NYU, and his students come in the door. He goes, I, I'm always in awe when my students walk in the door. And I say, what? You're in awe when your students walk through the door? And he says, yes, think about it. It's trillions of molecules moving all in unison and then sitting down. I said, well, if you think about it that way, that is awesome. Right? But that was his choice. That's how he sees the world. Right? That's inside him. That's how he looks at it. And in doing so, he will have all those positive effects. And if you knew Larry, that would be true. You would know it to be true. Which again means that awe is inside you. Okay? Those who experience... And so what is the characteristic of a person who has experienced less awe? Those who experience less awe are less, less, less flexible, they're more neurotic, and they're more self-absorbed. They're much less likely to experience awe. Whereas those who experience more awe are wiser, literally they're wiser, possibly because of the awe itself that it helps them. They are less concerned about being right. They might be concerned about rightness, but they're less concerned that they are the ones who have that right. They are those who experience more awe are more open to new experiences. But what's more, and I find this even more important, is that the people are letting, they're more willing to let go of the meanings that they had in the past experiences. So we often talk about extroverted, being open to new experiences. It's a very beautiful thing, but what about introverts, right? Can they not experience awe? What I'd like to suggest a different kind of openness, possibly a far more important kind of openness, a more democratic openness, which isn't the openness to new experiences, you know, going to Burning Man and all this, right? <laughs> it's being open to letting go of the meaning of the experiences you've had, right? That to me is a far more powerful kind of openness, the openness to be wrong, the openness to not know, the openness to say, you know what, that's a good point. I'm gonna let go or I'm going to engage with that. Rather than, I am open to experiences, that's great, I've now got a meaning, and forever I'm going to hold that meaning. Not very useful, not very adaptable. So I'd suggest that the second kind of openness that we don't often talk about, that openness to letting go, is possibly a far more powerful openness to adaptability and to mental health and physical health even. So to conclude, awe creates openness especially this type of openness, right? Not only the openness to new experiences, but open to letting go of the past ones, okay? It empowers you to proactively step into uncertainty rather than reactively. And by giving you the want to, to let go, okay? And remember, this is basically all is the mediator of what Buddha said many years ago, right? that the root of all suffering is attachment, right? And because we hold on to that not movement, now through all is the mechanism by which we can actually become unattached, okay? All is the bridge to the bruises of not attachment. So, and nor is for its own sake to not just be attached because it's the first step to achieving understanding. You can't get understanding if you haven't let go of what you thought to be before, if you haven't disengaged, disattached with your previous beliefs and ideas. 
So awe is our brain's most powerful perception that engenders health, and that would be emotional, physical, or also social. Um, so thank you very much. I hope that was useful. I have no idea what time it is. Are we, are we doing questions? Ah, okay, we're good. So we have microphones, there are two microphones, so if you have questions, I'll give you a call right here, but don't start speaking until the microphone comes. Hold it, hold it. So, I don't know if this is on, can you hear? Is it on? Okay, we're good. Um, so many people would rather be right than happy. Yeah. So how do you switch that to not getting triggered into getting your mindset in awe? So people would rather be right than happy. That's for sure. And then what's the second bit? How do you, how, how do you, how do you change your mindset to awe so you can let go of being triggered to defending yourself to being right? Um, well, first of all, by becoming aware of how and why your brain sees what you do, right? That's the first point, because um, the, to understand that when you're trying to be right, all kinds of negative things are gonna possibly happen in your life. You're gonna have worse relationships. You're gonna, your emotional health is gonna decrease. So it gives you the incentive to um, uh, um, look beyond the the importance of being right and become aware that actually that's just a ref reflex to your fear of uncertainty. And then to think about why is it that I need to hold on so tightly to this being right? Now, this is not to say that people shouldn't have an opinion, right? It's very important to have an opinion. But the question is, how strongly are you gonna hold to that? Are you willing to shift your opinion based, for instance, on evidence? That's good, but do you, I think emails are very dangerous Yeah, so she was saying that emails are very dangerous today because you can interpret na nastiness in an email. And it's true, right? Because, um, because you're, of course, layering in your assumptions. This is, what I, what, this is what it would mean to me had I written that. So other people are just the sources of meaningless information. Everything I said to you this evening is meaningless. All right? You're creating the meaning and projecting it onto me. So you can never know... You can, you can measure what someone does, where they do it, when they do it, but you can never know why they do it. So to better understand another person is not to know what they did or where they did it, it's to know why they did it. Okay? But you can't be inside their head, you have to ask them. That's why you want to enter conflict with a question rather than with an answer. Because you want to know why do they do it. And once you know why, then you can have the debate about, well, maybe, maybe their why is not a good idea. But how can you validate someone if you don't understand them in the first place? Hey, uh, so uh, theory versus practice, right? So yeah. how do you balance the principles versus in the real world we need rules and laws as well, right? And my second question is, um, can a narcissist experience awe? I asked that on behalf of my family. <laughs> oh, you say he's narcissistic? We should ask him then. So balancing rules and principles. I'm not, <laughs> dinner's gonna be interesting. So, <laughs> so, 
So um, I'm not saying you have rules or principles, okay? Principles are equals mc squared is a principle. It doesn't care if you're a bowling ball, a planet, or a chicken, okay? It applies across context, right? But then there are things that are specific to chickens, right? So rules are very efficient, right? The problem is that the problem is we focus just on rules. So if a bus is coming at you, I don't want you to think, oh, I wonder if there's a different way I can see this, right? You get out of the way <laughs> as fast as possible, right? It's just that we tend to want to have rules because rules sort of give us a recipe. It enables us not to think. And what I say to people, I'm not going to give you rules because have you ever been successful by following a recipe? Rules are for people who don't want to. As soon as you want to, you don't need the rules, you're going to make it happen. But rules can be very efficient. But principles transcend context. They're much more adaptable. Which is why I suggest that people define themselves as a verb rather than as a noun. I'm someone who's adaptable. I'm someone who's resilient. I'm someone who's kind. These are things that transcend who you're talking to or the context. Right? And then how I apply that context to George is very specific to George. Right? So that's the principles with rules. And then the other question was? Can a narcissist? Oh, can a narcissist? Well, that's a good question. Um, no, genuinely, it's a really good question. Because um, I would suggest uh, the answer is no. Experience all. Now, I would say that um, with that said, we don't know the study. We don't have the results on that. I'd make a prediction. But, but it could also be that it could be one of the mechanisms by which to take them out of their narcissism. And also, I think narcissism is possibly also contextual. We're all contextual. We're many people inside. And we can both be kind and unkind depending on the context. We're not a kind person. depends on the context that we're in. Yeah. Oh, and then we'll go over here. Yeah. I'm focused on the left. I don't know why. So I'm interested in how you might think about the power of awe in relationship to helping people heal from something like childhood trauma, which is often defined, as you were describing, as like figuring out a way to change the stories of your past or mm -hmm. letting go of the stories of your past. And, and maybe you haven't thought about this, but yeah. I'm curious in your work if this is something you could apply in a therapeutic setting. Yeah, I think there's very much a, a place you can apply in a therapeutic setting. In fact, this is one of the things that we're doing. We call it the perceptual change process. And we start the perceptual change process with awe because it's not itself the cure. Because remember, awe can also be weaponized. Awe, like many things, empathy, awe, they're not good or bad. It's how you use them. So I can use empathy. I could be inside you. I can think, oh, what it's like to be you. And then I could use that to manipulate you. Right? So awe, think about military parades. Military parades are designed to engender awe in people. Now you're open to suggestion. You're feeling bonded to the people around you. Right? Churches, that's why they have these huge cathedrals, because it facilitates that sense of awe and wonder, but now you're going to be more open to a suggestion. So similarly, so we use it, as a, and studies that we're doing now, is we can use it to try to facilitate people opening up the possibility of asking questions that they were afraid to ask before, right? And this is also the mechanisms of, of psilocybin and psychedelics. But we would argue that in some sense, they are hacking the awe system, right? This is an endogenous way of doing it. And I'm not saying they sh we shouldn't do that, that those are also very, very useful strategies. Yeah. I was very moved by your presentation. Thank you. And the consequence is that I kind of was an on, have lost a lot of it. <laughs> so what I would love 
is if you could give us some just really practical ways that we could um, see awe. Yeah. You know, for instance, the night sky always creates awe for me, so that Doesn't. would be one thing. Stars. I love the stars. I feel awe. But what is something that we can do in our life that we can take away and we can say, oh, here's a couple things that he said that I can do to do, you know, to help increase awe in my life? Yeah. So it's a great question. Thank you. Um, the, and thank you. For, I'm glad you, you enjoyed it. The, um, the, uh, how, what are some practical things? Well, first of all, life is a practice. Uh, and we don't get in shape and then live. We get in shape by living. Okay? So we so often forget our brain is actually part of our body. We talk about the brain and the body. It's not brain and the body. The brain is the body. Part of it. And your brain is like a muscle. You use it or lose it. And we'll go to the gym every day or three times a week or something like that. You know, we wouldn't go to the gym once and say, brilliant, I'm sorted, right? I'm done. And yet for some reason we treat our brain this way, right? We'll go to therapy once and say, brilliant, I've sorted out all my problems, I'm a good person, right? No, this is something you do every single day. You wake up this way. It's a constant practice. And one of the ways you do this, this is why with conflict, and I'll come to the awe, this is where you, you practice every moment in every conversation. You know, we so often have people who are meditating. Wonderful, it's wonderful to meditate. And they'll go on the mat, they'll have their 15, 20, 30 minutes of meditation, and then say, brilliant, I'm done, and then screw people the rest of the day, <laughs> right? And so my point is, you know, a yoga teacher is, they're not a yogi because they're flexible on the mat, right? It's what you do when you're off the mat that makes you a yogi. Right? Your, um, your meditation is how you engage with a person. You're in a moment of meditation in every conversation. Are you activating your prefrontal cortex to look away from the obvious? Your brain is constantly looking at the obvious, looking at triggers. That makes me angry. That makes me angry. I say to my gremlins, right? It's when things that are difficult give you the opportunity to reveal yourself, but also to create yourself. Because it's how you respond in that moment that becomes the meaning of the moment. Okay? So in that moment, you actually have freedom. You can go to anger, but you can also choose not to go to anger. Whereas if you're happy and everything's wonderful, you don't really have a choice. What are you going to do? You're going to keep doing what you're doing before. Okay? So how do we practice awe? Right? We actually have to look for it sometimes, and then eventually it can come. Again, it's a practice. Like, you know, you're training your muscles, you're training your mind. And that's why I say look for the impossible and the common. Right? There's a story of ants that farm aphids, and they'll even create corrals for aphids. It's remarkable, right? I was going to tell that story. So they're creating these, you know, they're farmers. They're farming aphids. And then at night, they take them inside, and then they stroke them. They stroke the aphids, like petting them, right? And then the aphids release this, this, very, um, this sugar water, and then the ants drink it. Right? And, they ha and what's more, the ants then provide them with carbohydrates, etc. So they have this symbiotic relationship. Right? That's amazing. That's amazing, is it not? Right? So when we engage and we find the impossible, so in the lab we have what we call the awe journal. Try to find one thing that was impossible, that was common, that you, that you didn't see before, and write it down and engage with it. Yeah. Does that help? Yes. Yes. So from a manipulative or applied um, application, <laughs> if I'm making a presentation to an audience or a pitch, and I know half of them aren't going to be receptive because they think I always want to be right or something, 
do I need to start off with something that's like awesome, like pictures of the birds flying or the, the universe or a galaxy spinning around to, to, yeah. to get them in a different mindset? It really depends. <laughs> they might think you're crazy. <laughs> let's watch the birds. Now let's talk about the paper. So, um, no, but your point, I, I, yes, I agree that you're, I know what you, um, yes, you want to try to, um, uh, you want to try to open their mind. Okay? And there are a number of ways you can open their mind. One of the ways of opening their mind is through awe. Another way is through play. Okay? Play is also evolution solution to uncertainty. Lightness, etc. So yes, you can actually try to find that sense of wonder in your audience and start off. And that's what a brilliant question. So in a pitch, finding a brilliant question can often do that. Think about when you're in a dinner party. Okay? You're in a dinner party, so often it's kind of, like, oh, this is lovely. And then what did you put? Oh, you did that? Oh, that's great. And then people will go around, it's a bit like Trivial Pursuit, and they say, oh, did you know this? And then they, did you know this? And that, oh, that's interesting. And then someone will ask a brilliant question, and everyone goes quiet. And they say, oh, I've never thought of it that way before. Right? They didn't say anything true. They just revealed to you an assumption that you didn't know you had. So that's what a brilliant question can do. And starting a pitch with a brilliant question does that. But finding a brilliant question is hard. It can take years to find a brilliant question. I'd say science is not about answers. It's not about uh, certainty. It's about iterating to better and better questions. Because finding a brilliant question is hard because it's so hard to find them, especially if you're an expert because you know what you're not supposed to know. To know. Whereas I celebrate naivete. To be naive with experts is a great combination. But we can all be naive within our expertise. We, your brain can shift. So thank you very much. Thanks for coming. Bo Lotto is the founder and CEO of the Lab of Misfits, a neuroperception creative studio. He's a professor of neuroscience at the University of London and a visiting scholar at New York University. He's also founder and CEO of the augmented reality company, Ripple. Lotto has given talks at festivals and companies around the world and has contributed to programs for the BBC, National Geographic, PBS, and others. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Health Team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.